Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Before we get going, I've got a couple announcements. First, we've got a bunch of maps on the website now. All you have to do is go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click resources, and then click maps. Also, we have stickers. These are vinyl waterproof stickers. They're pretty awesome. They're sized to fit your iPhone. So if you'd like a sticker, all you have to do is go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click stickers, exclamation point, and you'll have instructions on how to order your own stickers. And you're really going to want one of these things. It's going to do wonders for your personal life, for your love life, and it could also help you secure that job you've been really wanting. All in all, these stickers could really, really improve things for you. So you're going to want to grab one. So just go to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and click stickers, exclamation point, and you should be able to get one right there. But that's enough of that. So now, history. Okay, today is going to get a little bit confusing because, well, we're dealing with kings in the Anglo-Saxon early migration period, and that gets a little bit messy. But here we go. So here we are in the middle of all this drama and bloodshed that has been called the Anglo-Saxon invasion. We have famous names such as Hengist and Alice showing up during this period. And most everyone who's interested in this era is already familiar with the story of how, following the issue of Hengist and Horsa, you had warlords such as Alla and Turdit showing up and parceling out land. I mean, if you're British, you've already learned when you were a child that the North was taken by the Angles, the South was mostly taken by the Saxons, and then the Jutes, because really no one cares about the Jutes, took just a little bit in the South as well. But the thing about this story, the thing that makes telling it really difficult, is that there's not an insignificant chance that it's utter bullshit. So what do we know? Well, we know that Gildas, Bede, and others have told stories about invasion. We know at one point, most of the Britons in the area were speaking Latin or some sort of Brythonic language, and it didn't take too long before they were speaking Old English, which is a Germanic language, which comes from the same group of peoples that were told invaded. So that's interesting. We also know that Christianity, which was present in the lands that would become England, largely died out during this migration period, and paganism, which still held on in the homelands of the Anglo-Saxons, became resurgent in the area. So that's also interesting and makes you think that maybe something happened. But it's a confused message that we're given. Archaeological digs, as well as recent genetic studies, don't reflect genocide or even large-scale war. Things may change in the future, but so far there haven't been any finds that reflect a major military invasion. And yet you've got linguistic, cultural, and religious changes occurring all throughout the lands that would become England. So what was going on here? Well, I'd like to take some time to present as many pieces of the puzzle to you as I can, and then at the end I'd like to give you my guess and let you ponder whether or not you agree with me, or if you have your own ideas on what might have happened, and you can share those with us on the forums or Facebook or wherever. But don't worry, we will have kings in this episode, and actually in further episodes as well. In this one, we're going to have Alla. He was the first of the Bretwaldas, which translates roughly to Britain rulers, and he established his dominion over Sussex the South Saxons. We'll also chat a bit about Churditch, but we're going to get more into Churditch in the next episode. But he's the legendary founder of the House of Wessex, to whom our current monarchy can still trace itself to, if he actually existed. So let's get this going. The first thing to get out of the way is that dates don't matter as much as you think for our analysis. And actually, they can't really be relied upon. And I'm pretty sure that right now your head is spinning. 
You're probably thinking this is absolute madness because most of your school exams involved memorizing dates. History equals dates, right? Well, setting aside my frustration with that method of teaching history, for this period specifically, I can tell you that dates are very much a minor detail. That's because it seems like the chroniclers had, uh, well, how can I put this? They had a loose association with the concept of time. And they had an even looser association with the notion that one should be accurate in recording time. Much of the dates that we receive are the result of oral histories, biased accounts, or my own personal favorite, the lazy scribes of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, who seem to have simplified their job by writing a list of years in one column and then just listing events in the other column. I think the best analogy I can come up with is if you kept a diary with a line for each day, and then decades later you just went through it and filled out each line as best as you could, making sure that you put an entry on every single line, regardless of whether or not something really did happen on that day. And you just tried to make it as accurate as possible. And you're also aware that your significant other, your mother, and your grandparents were going to read this. Well, that looks like roughly what we might have here. We've got some self-censoring, we've got a really lazy approach to dates. It's just a mess. However, there's a lot of good stuff to be found in there as well. It's just we have to keep in mind that we're going to have some self-censoring in there, we're going to have a loose association with dates, and the writers clearly had their own agenda. Consequently, I'm going to pay more attention to events and the silences that we can find in the Chronicle than specific dates that have been given. Though I still will cite the dates so you can follow along. So of course, after that long discussion about how dates don't matter, you know what I'm going to start with? A date. So how about we have a pop quiz? Do you remember what happened in 367 CE? I'll give you a hint. Yep, that was the year of the Barbarian Conspiracy. Now the reason that I'm bringing that event up is because, as you might recall from the episode that covered it, the Saxons were part of the conspiracy. So nearly 100 years before Hengist supposedly arrived at Britain, we already have Saxons on the island. And here's the thing. During that conspiracy, they apparently split up into bands and raided all throughout the island. Well, Britannia was quite fertile, and the climate was temperate. Is it possible that some of the barbarians might have stuck around, noticing how lovely the land was? Sure, that's definitely possible. And don't forget that Britannia was having a rough time of it with the Saxons at around this period. It was getting so bad that they created a new position, the Count of the Saxon Shore, the Comus Latoris Saxoniki. And they built shore forts all along the eastern coast. Raiders were becoming one hell of a problem for the Romano-Brits, and it seems like the Saxons were some of the most problematic. So could some of those Saxon raiders have just set up camp somewhere and stayed there? Sure. And maybe the Brits would have allowed that to happen rather than having to deal with yet another fight. We've seen things like that play out in other countries, so there's no reason why it couldn't have happened here. Anyway, so you might have Saxons around the area already. Now let's fast forward to the arrival of St. Germanus. Do you remember that guy? He's the saint who visited Britain following Rome's withdrawal. And he arrived about 21 years before Hengist and his mercenaries showed up. Allegedly. This might jog your memory. One of his miracles actually took place in Britain. It was the thing where the village was burning down, but Germanus refused to get out of bed because his foot hurt. So God protected the building that he was in while letting the rest of the people's homes burn to ashes. You know, a miracle. 
Well, after that impressive showing, Germanus organized the Britons in defense against some barbarians, which I have to admit is kind of badass. And those barbarians were, you guessed it, Saxons. Or at least that's what we're told. And again, this was 21 years before Hengist. So where did these Saxons come from? Were they raiders? Were they settlers? We just don't know. But I don't think it stretches the imagination too far to suppose that not all of the Saxons who came to Britain during the century prior to Hengist were only raiders. Especially following Rome severing its ties with Britannia, the chaos of the era made Britannia a ripe target for squatters. And besides, things on the continent were a mess. So maybe what we're looking at are actually settlers. But they just as easily could have been raiders. After all, things were apparently pretty bad at around this point, and Rome wasn't interested in helping out, as you probably remember. But the British responded with a typical stiff upper lip and handled it on their own. And things were okay. And interestingly, Gildas points out that following that success, there was a period of luxury and debauchery. Sure, the Britons weren't minting coins, and sometimes people look at that as if there was a sudden collapse of all civilization, but it really doesn't mean that people were suddenly living in caves. And apparently, wealth and debauchery were so bad that Gildas felt the need to complain about it. So things were turning out okay. So here we have almost 100 years of experience with the Saxons, and we also have luxury following the withdrawal of Rome. So already, the story that we grew up with is a little bit shaky. Well, maybe Hengist can fix that and make things a little bit more dark and unpleasant. So he shows up in 450 CE-ish. Apparently, this is because of increased troubles with the Picts and Irish, so the British decided to outsource their defense. And so he shows up with his brother and a few ships, and they show up in the south to deal with the Pictish and Irish raiders who were in the west and north. Hang on a minute. I mean, sure, it seems like the Picts and Irish were seafaring people, but it is still a little bit strange, don't you think? And I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that we learn elsewhere that there were other groups, such as Canetha and his Votadini, who were also contracted to help, and actually they were sent further north and west. Now, I won't go into the story again because we've already beaten it to death. But Hengist defends the Brits for about five years, and then he has enough, and he decides to rebel. From there, it takes him only two years to conquer Kent, though it seems like there were bursts of violence that continue for nearly two decades. So already we're getting a sense of how long it should take to conquer a territory, but also we get a sense of the fact that the people weren't overly happy about being conquered. So we've got about two decades of fighting against Hengist. And then, four years after Hengist's last fight, Alla arrives with three ships, and he gets into a fight with the Britons in what would become Sussex. So we're at 477 CE now, or so the chronicler would have us believe. Anyway, Things got quiet for about eight years, so we've got about eight years of peace, or at least if there was violence, it wasn't big enough for the chronicler to actually write it down. And then Alla fights with the Welsh at McCraid's Burnstead. And then we have five more years of peace, until Alla and his son go and besiege a fort called Andrade's Sester. And there, once they win, they kill everybody inside. And that's the last we hear of Alla which I suppose wouldn't be that surprising if it wasn't for the fact that this man was described as a Bretwalda, one of only seven in the history of England. He was a big deal. Yet all we have are three battles stretched out over 13 years. That's kind of strange, isn't it? And now that I'm thinking about it, Hengist, 
The guy who is typically blamed with starting this mess, along with Vortigern, only had four battles listed. This is hardly the image of an armed invasion that you had in your mind, is it? Or how about this? The Chronicler went to the trouble of telling us that following Alice's siege of Andrade's Sester, that he killed everyone inside. Notations like that are absent from other battles, which indicates that massacres probably didn't follow the other battles. And if it was a normal event, if you just massacred whoever lost every time, why would you include it with Andrade's Sester? So maybe this wasn't the brutal, genocidal invasion that lives on in our imaginations. Now, we've also been given a myth of one-sidedness, that the Anglo-Saxons came over like Vikings on steroids and, and took over with the Brits largely helpless to stop them, short of an intervention by Arthur. We imagine that those who didn't flee were either enslaved or killed. But when we look at what Procopius has to say, it doesn't look that black and white. He tells us of a migration of Germanic people from Britannia, not to Britannia. That's right, the Germans were fleeing from the island. And that flight would have been occurring during the early migration period. And at least part of it was happening, if we can trust the dates, around 30 years after Mons Badonicus. So unless people were really slow at packing up their things, we're looking at potential refugees from Britannia long after the famous British victory. And this would have been during Gildas' alleged time of peace. So maybe peace for Gildas was the British flexing their muscles and pushing the Saxons out, you know? Not only that, but think about what Procopius is telling us. If we're talking about war bands and raiders, resettlement wouldn't be all that necessary, would it? They'd just get back on their ships and find new lands to take. But these people sound more like refugees. We'll come back to this later, but they don't sound like the scary war bands that we've come to imagine when we hear of Arthur or Churditch or Hengist. They sound like farming communities. Communities that might have been there for a generation or two, which would account for why they had to be given new lands as refugees rather than just going back to their homeland. Maybe they didn't have a homeland to go to. Maybe Britannia was their home, and that was all they knew. Which again shakes the image of an Anglo-Saxon invasion, doesn't it? And consequently, of these Anglo-Saxon kings and early Bretwaldas. And let's make it even worse. What about Cadbury Hill? Do you remember that community? It's been a while since we've talked about it, but there you have a British community living in a hill fort, developing an industry where they made jewelry, and even taking part in a trade route that stretched to Byzantium. Or what about Roxeter? That was a British community that held on, survived, and even thrived during this period. And both of these communities were in the south, where Hengist, Alla, and later Churditch were supposed to be on the rampage. It's kind of odd, isn't it? So after Alla and his son butchered everyone inside the fort, he disappears from the record. No more Alla. Five years later, Churditch and his son show up at Churditch's oar, along with five ships, of course, and they defeat the Welsh that they find there. Five years following that, we're told that the Battle of Mons Badonicus, the Battle of Baton Hill, took place. And again, this was the famous Battle of King Arthur, where he put the Saxons to flight. Now, it looks like the battle, regardless of whether or not Arthur existed, might have actually taken place. And like we just spoke about, it might have resulted in some Germanic settlers being given the heave-ho. And interestingly, given that Alla is listed as a Bretwalda, he might have led the Germanic settlers in that famous battle against the British. It's hard to say for sure, but it certainly is an interesting thought. Something else that might pique your interest is that Churditch, the founder of the House of Wessex, is not listed as a Bretwalda. 
that might shock you considering the power of the House of Wessex. But something that I always have to keep in mind, and something that might help you as well, is to remember that while we all know how this ends, the people living at the time didn't. And just because his house would become dominant, that doesn't mean that it was always so. And even more important, just because we know that the Anglo-Saxons, or at least the people who were culturally what we refer to as Anglo-Saxon, would become dominant in the region, that was far from a sure thing for about 200 years. This whole period is going to have wild swings back and forth. And so really, you should try and do yourself a favor and forget that the Anglo-Saxons win and just focus on the story, because it really could go either way a couple times. It's pretty exciting stuff. Anyway, so the image that we're getting from the story that we're hearing about in the scattered record and what we can find is one of ebb and flow, one of victories and defeats, and most importantly, one of sporadic rather than continual outbursts of violence. And that violence doesn't seem to be genocidal in nature, since Allah's siege stands alone. And more importantly, these don't seem like the actions of bloodthirsty war bands and what we think of kings, do they? I mean, we're told of nine battles in the space of 50 years. And these wouldn't have been like the old Roman battles with tens of thousands of professional warriors. These would have been small. So nine small battles in 50 years that we know of. And that's the starting point for our Anglo-Saxon invasion. I mean, you can't deny that there is a cultural and linguistic shift over the course of a couple centuries. But looking at those first 50 years, it seems strange to me to refer to this as an invasion. To be honest, I'm pretty sure it was a migration, and I don't think that's necessarily that controversial of a statement. But even then, it still doesn't strike me as the singular story that Bede and others would have us believe. And I would love a singular story. Singular stories are a lot easier to tell. But this seems much more chaotic and personal than that. So what on earth was going on here? Well... Maybe to get a handle on it, we should look at what we know of the people who were coming over. Of course, we know about Hengist and Horsa, and we have echoes of other characters such as Alla and his sons. And certainly, we know who they become because we've spoken about many of the cultural bits that make the Anglo-Saxon culture distinct and tangible. Most importantly, their approach to food, which was a pillar of society. And that gives us a little bit of the story. But really, who were they? And what was going on here? As you might have noticed, I've been doing my best to dispel the myth of invasion in this episode. Invasion implies an army, or at least a large force. It also implies some sort of nationhood and a plan. And I'm not sure that we have evidence for that. So let's chat about the people who were coming over, since they weren't all Alla and Churditch. Many were unnamed individuals on boats. So who were they, and what did they want? Well, I'm running out of time here, so this is going to have to be a multi-parter. But to begin with... These were outer barbarians. What I mean by that is that unlike barbarians on the frontier, such as the Franks, that had contact with Rome and Romanized peoples, the people of the Danish peninsula who made this migration were largely cut off from the Roman cultural influence. The migrants who arrived in Britannia might have known of Rome, but at best they probably knew of it from secondhand sources. Owning Roman goods would have been incredibly rare. I mean, these were true barbarians. And they probably weren't organized the way we're inclined to think of them. Because of the way we organize ourselves these days, we tend to imagine that most peoples throughout history have been organized into nations. But the scattered references that we have tell of a people who, in large part, only formed small communities. There weren't nations, not in the sense that we think of them. And in many cases, each man was a captain on his own boat. 
So we really should keep that in mind when we think of these people crossing over and landing. They probably all had their own motivations, thoughts, plans, and arrangements, or lack thereof, set up. It'll also help us better understand the chaos of the early period, since nation-building probably wasn't a priority for many of these people. Further, we have to disabuse ourselves of the Conan the Barbarian view of barbarians. This is a bias that stretches all the way back to the time of Tacitus and beyond, so don't feel bad if you've got it. But just because they are disconnected from Rome and Romanization doesn't mean that they were all hardened warriors. The fact of the matter is that these early migrants were surprisingly unremarkable in many ways. From the graves of the early migrants, we get a picture of a community that consisted of not warriors, but farmers. The graves aren't filled with battle wounds and stuff like that. Rather, you find what you'd expect to find in a community, especially a farming community. You find children, pregnant women, arthritic farmhands, and the like. And from some of the digs that we found, we have an image that runs counter to the legend that we grew up with. These are laborers, not heroes from a fable. Their joints show that they spent long hours working. Their teeth were worn down, probably from their poorly produced food that relied upon coarse grains. Judging from their possessions, it doesn't seem like they were craftsmen, traders, or aristocrats either. What little they had in the way of pottery or clothing, for example, was poorly made and rather utilitarian. Now obviously things are going to change as the centuries pass, but these early migrants look like they were mostly farmers. And when we look at many of their communities, such as mucking, we find that they were on mediocre land. Not terrible land, but certainly not the most fertile in the area which could suggest that the better land was already held by others, quite possibly by pre-existing British communities. And yet they stayed there, in their mediocre land, rather than evicting their neighbors. Which seems downright neighborly to me. Their communities were small, and in many cases consisted of undefended farmsteads. And, like much we're going to find out about them as we go forward in this series, their approach to farming, just like everything else, seems to have varied. Some would farm communally, while others would handle their farms almost like a crofter, with each family tending its own self-sufficient farm. I can't emphasize this enough. I really don't think we're looking at a monolithic invasion, or even a monolithic migration. It seems like these were individual communities and even individual families relocating. But there is an overarching theme that we can see in Britannia during this period, and it's that of downsizing. And this shrinking would spread throughout the entire region. Roman Britannia was one of big places. You had basilica, you had forums, you had all kinds of stuff. Big places, big towns. But now those days were coming to a close, and things were shifting to small communities, and in large part, small farming communities. The industrial towns were vanishing. They simply couldn't be sustained in this new economy. Things were changing, and it looks like the Britons were struggling to change with them. And these Anglo-Saxons? Well... They were poor, and it doesn't seem like there was a lot of fighting going on, though it does seem like it happened sometimes. And from the looks of it, there weren't a lot of them. But that minor influx of Anglo-Saxons in the 5th century is going to turn into a flood in the 6th century. And in part 2 of this series, we're going to talk about Churditch, as well as how and why the Britons might have integrated into this new culture that was taking root in Britannia. 
Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History, and you can search for us on Twitter. Just look for at British Podcast, or you can join us at the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. Thanks for listening.